every stand was different, not just in the way it looked, but the mood of that stand at times. I just remember looking across to the Kipax and you'd see back then, you'd see like cigarettes lighting up and that. And I just used to think it was magical, this dark stand. And I couldn't wait to be in there. And then the first time I was in there, wow. The official Manchester City podcast. Nadem, it's 100 years since we played our first game at Main Road and uh, the club have been doing a, a kind of week-long celebration of various bits of content. And as part of that, the official Manchester City podcast is talking to football historian Dr Gary James today about Main Road, its history, its heritage and its, its general significance. Firstly, before we speak to Gary, I wanted to ask you, what are your kind of memories of, of Main Road? So I remember going there the first time, and it was after I joined the academy, getting the chance to have like a ticket to go and watch a game, or two tickets it was. And in fact, getting one extra when I was a ball boy as well. And from going there, you start to see, like it's not normal in life if you're not into, say, a sport, to see tens of thousands of people all going to share the same experience. But again, a chance to go there, to see the colours, to see the team, to see the excitement in the stands when like a goal goes in. I think because we're involved in football, we kind of take that stuff for granted. It's actually quite, it's quite deep, you know, and the more I went, the more I started to understand the stadium. And the more I went, the more I started to understand the football club. You'd be going there with people who are the same ages, the people who could be 20, 30, 40, 50 years older, and they're all sharing stories. And it's a chance for you to really understand and say what the football club is. And I was very privileged to have played there in a youth team game, honored to have been there as a ball boy. But I just remember always that journey in on the 111 to Southern Cemetery, getting off and just going and making my way to the stands and just seeing, you know, those players represent the club in the way that they do. So, and also I've got to give credit, we're here in 2023 after they've won a treble, but that 100 years is still just as important as anything that's just been. I think that says a lot about what this club is. So you're talking there about kind of getting the, the feeling and the ethos of the club kind of pumped into your main road. Do you think that was, because presumably you were there on kind of a scheme, youth, youth players getting tickets. Yeah, that's right. Do you think that's the reason why we did that scheme, is to, is, to, is to foster that kind of energy? I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. And I think, you know, it's very much a community-based club as well, you know, and they want everyone to feel like they are a part of it because essentially you are. Whether you're a fan that's going for the first time or one that's going for the thousandth game in a row, whether you're, you've just joined the academy, you've been there for three, four, five years, they want you to share that experience. Because even from my perspective, being in the youth team, like that's the end goal. You want to play here. If you want to see, you're privileged to be able to see professionals do a great job and to see like what it's like to play in front of thousands of people. I think at times you could just get caught up in a mode where oh, I'm just playing uh, at the Armitage Centre on a Sunday or whatever. But no, you're also seeing the team play on the Saturday. And that is, you know, that's the top of the tree. That's where you want to strive to be. And yeah, getting people involved, especially with the ball boy in. Like you can't, it's great being in the stands, I promise you, you feel like you're right there when you're a ball boy. You're, you know, you've touched the match ball, you've gone and gotten it. You're talking to the goalkeeper, he's giving you stuff like the players are saying hello to you. Become a familiar face and yeah, like, how much there is for you as well. And looking back, I think I love that. Amazing. And it was quite tight as well. So if you're in that sort of section area, basically, between the pitch and the... You're right there. And that you're right in that. Yeah, you're right there. All, my, only, my only grievance though was, it's not the fact that I was ball boy in, in front of the North Stand. The fact that I didn't have a chair, so I was just kneeling on gravel. So I've probably got two years of like damage to my knees because of that. But then I suppose it's the Worth price it. you'll pay. Yeah, it's the price you'll pay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. Let's get on with it. Here is our conversation on the official Manchester City podcast with Dr. Gary James. 
I want to start to explain really to people, to our listeners who maybe don't know you, don't know your work, kind of who you are and uh, how you very, you know, very first came to, to work in the field that you do. Well, I've been a City fan since birth. My dad used to bring me when I was a baby and, you know, I, I've, I've been going to City all those years, season to go and that. But when I became a sort of teenager and a young adult, I suppose, I, I wanted to find out more about the history of a club. And back then there wasn't really much out there. Um, and I started to do some research. I mean, I, I got in touch with um, a publisher and said, you've done all these books on United and Leeds and then Everton and so on. Why don't you do one on City? And it, I was very lucky. From that point on, um, they said they wanted to do a book on City and wanted me to help them. And my first book came out when I was 21. And from that point on, I just sort of written and researched and carried on and really enjoyed it. Uh, I did my PhD about eight years ago now, where... It was on the origins of football in Manchester, and it became my sort of life, my passion. So that uh, historical lens that you you apply to things isn't just City. There's a there's a lot of uh, United in there as well, isn't there? And you take a broad view of just Manchester, what it's given to football and to the world. Yeah, I mean, years before City and United existed, there were teams that were introducing football to Manchester that have long since gone. Um, so yeah, my family is after Ed. My granddad was a big, big United fan. Um, so my family's half red, half blue, and it just happens that my dad took me to Main Road. And I have probably researched United as much as City and quite often um, catch them out with stuff they say about their history. Um, because for me, if, if you sort of know your enemy, then it helps you to understand yourself more. And, you know, I've, I've written a lot of good stuff on on things like Berry and Stockport and so on because it's, for me, the relationships are so important between the Manchester clubs and... City won the FA Cup in 1904. That made Manchester football a city. Without that, Manchester was very much a rugby city. Rugby was the number one sport. So I, I, I want to understand the impact football has had on Manchester and what Manchester has had on football. We're here today to celebrate Main Road. Uh, it's 100 years since we played our first game there. Um, we've had a whole host of celebratory content that's gone out across the week and, and, and this is a part of it. Tell us about the origins of Main Road. So obviously City, for those who don't know, used to play a place called Hyde Road. Uh, there was a need for a, for a new stadium, a bigger stadium. Um, we chose Moss Side in, in, in South Manchester and, and Main Road was born. And then we were there for, for 80 years. Just take us back to how that decision came. What was the need? What was the desire for Main Road? Going right back to the 1890s, because I think that's, that's important, is City became, what became Manchester City in 1894. And already... Um, were in the league, but already it was felt that the old Hyde Road ground wasn't good enough. And so from the 1890s onwards, they kept talking about a move. Now, Hyde Road eventually could hold about 40,000, but it was cramped. It was a traditional sort of old football stadium. Uh, if you think of, well, even Goodison Park isn't, you know, if you think about that, it, it, could, it was nowhere near as good as that, if you like. And that today we see as a really old sort of crumbling stadium. So they kept talking about moving to Bellevue, which was large, Zoo and um, at a, what became a Speedway Stadium and so on. And we talked about moving there. But then they shocked football by in 1922 saying we're moving to Moss Side. And at the time, Moss Side uh, was densely populated with, with terraced housing, but it was still expanding. So it was a, a, the sort of estate that became around the Platte Lane area um, was being built. And so it was seen as a gamble. Now, back in 1910, United had moved from more or less where Asda is today um, 
uh, near the Etihad to Old Trafford, and their support dropped significantly. Right, even though we won the league, their support dropped. So moving from the Hardwick area of Manchester, East Manchester, to Moss Side was seen as a gamble. And I interviewed this guy years ago. He was in his 90s, and this was the 1990s. And he said they felt that moving from High Road to Main Road, this concrete, modern stadium, City wouldn't be the same. There was a unique atmosphere at High Road, and City would not be the same place. And everything he said to me was similar to what we felt in 2003 when we moved from Main Road to what became the Etihad. Um, and he said, we got to the first game at Main Road and within weeks it became home. And then we started winning trophies there and then it was absolutely City's home. And the passion was there, the humour was there, the, everything else that City fans were, were known for then and are known for now. That is exactly the same, isn't it, as when we moved to well, what was originally the City of Manchester Stadium because... I was guilty of it. I didn't want to move from Main Road. Didn't like the new the new stadium at first. I'm, I'm happy to admit it. It didn't look like our stadium. Didn't feel like ours. But we've been very fortunate at the Etihad, haven't we, that we've created so many memories in a relatively short space of time. I mean, we've had an incredible 20 years. That helps a ground, doesn't it, when, you, when yeah. you've had those moments. That first season at the Etihad at the City of Manchester Stadium, it was great. The stadium was great. You know, it wasn't colourful. It was grey. The seats were blue, obviously, but outside it was grey. There were no bars, really. We didn't... There was no, nothing to grab you. Your routine had gone from Main Road. Then we had a game against Newcastle towards the end of the season, which we needed... I think we needed to win. can't remember the final score, to be honest, now, but because we were, in, we were having a bit of a struggle. And the atmosphere that day was great. And I, I, I remember thinking then, even in a, sea, a, a period of, of struggle, it's, it, it, the atmosphere can be there. We just need to believe. But once you start winning trophies, it properly comes, doesn't it? it? Because you've got the memories in that stadium. And that's what happened with Main Road. You know, by the late 1930s, they'd won the FA Cup. There'd been massive crowds at games. They'd won the league. And would anyone have moved back to Hyde Road? Absolutely not. Do you know, in regards to that, I feel like there's a generation of people, do you know, who mentioned the fact that they were in Division 2 in 99, who went to Wembley at that time. And the success that, say, City have had over the last 10 years, for as much as it's subjectively amazing, I feel like it doesn't necessarily suit their personalities as such. <laughs> you know, so you mentioned that element of grey that existed at the stadium. Do you find, if you speak to people, that maybe some people aren't fully engaging with what's going on here because it doesn't seem to... Be, because, like, for my generation, I feel like you supported City or you started supporting them as an underdog. And all of a sudden now you face with them being the favourite every single week. And when you are a person that buys into the underdog, how do you then become the favourite? Oh, it's a great question, man, because I think there's like sort of three, three types of City fan. Uh, and I know there's more, but you know, in general, let's just do sort of general. So there's like my generation and older who just about remember success at Main Road, League Cup 76, all the stuff that went before that. So it's my generation or older who then saw City go down the divisions. And, the, and, and so 1999 for us was we're in our worst ever position, it's awful, we shouldn't be here, we used to win trophies, we're as big as Leeds and Everton and Aston Villa and blah, 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 Chelsea, Man United, whatever, right? Then there's an, another generation that's sort of younger than me, probably your age, Rob, who remember mostly failure and... That's definitely mine, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry to write that. That's it. definitely but mine. remember mostly failure and then that fight back, which was incredible. Let's not forget that was incredible, that fight back. And then obviously the success that's followed. And then there's another generation, which is probably my daughter's 
my youngest daughter's generation who knows that we have had problems in the past, but by the time she's a regular city and a season ticket holder at City, we're in the Premier League, we're playing at the stadium, and it's magical. It's wonderful. I mean, she does say, oh, I was there in the bad days when... You know, Keegan with Sample was playing. Well, mm. they weren't the bad days. You know, you know that. Well, but that's how she feels. So it's different. And I remember 2012, the Aguero day, right? When we were dead and buried, and then we scored. So there was one. You know, we still need another goal, but we scored. My daughter was like, "We can do this. We can do this." And I'm like, "You've not watched City as long as I have." And I was the pessimistic, and she was right, and her generation are right, and. And I'm an, yeah, I'm an historian, but what I always say to people is, City is what we experience. And for some people, they never experienced Made Road. So for them, it's history and it's, it's in the past. But what they have today is what they know. And we have to remember that. If we constantly talk about 1999, as important as it is, if we constantly talk about that, we sort of betray what we are today. Same as if we constantly talk about 1968 we betray what we were in 1999. So we need to revisit our history. And for some people, winning the Champions League is their first memory of Manchester City. And we have to we have to remember that. And I, I mean, what a great memory that would be. You know, uh, my my earliest memory of City was City signing Rodney Marsh, which at the time was a major signing. That's equivalent to if we sign a major star today, in my in my head. Obviously, it's different, but in my head, that's how it is. In terms of main road, and I'd, I'd open this out to you as well as a question, Nadim, because I th- really did feel it was special, and I, I don't know whether that's... I started going when I was seven, eight years old, got first season ticket when I was 10, um, and then we left um, by the time I was sort of 18, 19. So it, it, I was... That period in your life, you do kind of mythologise things, but I genuinely felt it was a special place, and I still miss it today. In your opinion... A, was it special? And B, what do you think made it have so much kind of luster and, and glamour in a weird way? Even though it wasn't a glamorous place, you know what I mean? It, there was glamour to it. I think it's the stability, the consistency. Even the, like, the football club goes up and down, right? Um, but the fact that it was the routine, going to that place, seeing the people that you saw, knowing everything about it you know whether it's going in the park side or going for a bag of chips or whatever it's that routine it's 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 knowing that and that's built on 80 years so our parents and their parents maybe were going to that same place and doing those same routines walking down those passageways and and all of that you know doing all of those things and obviously things change every stand at main road had changed in some way the base of the main stand was still the same but the roof had changed the seats had changed the north stand had been built the plat lane had changed the kickbacks had changed. All of that changed. But that grass was still the same position that Eric Brook played in in 1930s, you know, or, or Colin Bell or whatever. And, and that was special. I I interviewed a guy because I did, you know, I did a, a book on the history of the stadium in 2003. And I, I interviewed this guy and he said to me, I've got married, got divorced. I've had kids. They've moved out. Um, I've changed jobs. I've had a favourite player. He's left. Um, I've done, and he, I've changed jobs. He went through everything in his life. He said, that's all changed. But one thing that's constant is Main Road. And now that's changing. He said, nothing, nothing's stable anymore. And that's how he honestly felt. Nothing's stable. And, and like, I know my dad 
um, for various reasons, partly because of health. He's not been to the Etihad that much over the last two decades, but partly it's because it's not main road. And we have to recognise that for some people, main road was a special place and it was special for me. But now the Etihad's special to me as well. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's different. Like changing schools. You might have loved that school and you might like that school. But the bottom line is, you know, it's, it's, it's just where it is. It's yeah. different. 100%. I think that's the thing. It's about feeling like it's home, you know, and nobody is really seeking large changes in their life, especially with something that they hold so dear. And, you know, as well, looking back, like the Premier League was, was it 10 years old when City moved to City of Manchester? Like that's, that's still quite a new league. Everything's quite new at that point. And I think for me, I guess the change... So when I started supporting City, it was in the 90s, and I'm going to Main Road alongside people who've been going to Main Road for 50, 60, 70 years. You know, I'm having a different experience to what they're having, but still it's, it's there. We're all there at the same time. But now, um, and I found this as well with former players, you can sort of group them based on the era and the situation, the place that they played. Like someone like Sean Goto is a club icon, but I don't think he played at the City of Manchester really, did he? No, didn't. You know he what just I mean? Did the, ba- the Barcelona. He came out on the pitch for Barcelona friendly. Barcelona didn't he? friendly. Yeah, 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 that was it. But then I, I'm thinking. I remember Sean Go taking the ball away from Gary Neville. This, that, and the other. Oh, they beating United. That's Main Road. And then you think and a great about, day as well. By then the way. you talk about City and Manchester era. Then you talk about the Etihad era. And it is. It's so. It is so so different. But then I think around that sort of time we start to see more stadiums, new stadiums being built. I think. In the Premier League era, like which were the first new stadiums that were going to be built for teams that were up there? Well, the stadiums like Bolton Wanderers, yeah, um, and Huddersfield Town, they were sort of built, and you can see they're the same sort of stadium. They all look the yeah. same. They're like an identity kit, weren't they? And that was the one thing I did say about the Etihad, even from day one, was at least ours was different. To it was those. different, yeah. And do you know what we? The, the thing about the the Etihad, we talked about nineteen ninety nine, and that goal. From Dickoff, but it's not just Dickoff, it's everything about that game and the penalties and all that. So we talk about Dickoff because it's like the Aguero moment, it's great, you know, you know, it's it's ter- but it's, it's it's not that goal itself, it's everything that goes with it. But if you think about it, we would not have moved to the stadium without that promotion because it was the following it was this close season after that when the deal was signed. And I've done, you know, I, I did a book called Manchester Football History and I interviewed uh, people from the council and, and others. And City were not going to move if they were still in the third tier. It wasn't going to happen. And so a more of a temporary stadium would have been built for Commonwealth Games, a bit like has happened uh, in the past in, I think it was, was it Edinburgh years ago? It was like more of a temporary stadium that was built. So it wouldn't, there would not have been a move. So if City hadn't moved, obviously everything that's followed possibly wouldn't have happened. We possibly wouldn't have been taken over. But not only that, the London Olympics... But the reason London was able to bid for those Olympics was because of the success of the Commonwealth Games. And the Commonwealth Games was successful because it had an anchor tenant. And we we were an anchor tenant because of that playoff final. So so if you trace it through... And Next time we see Paul Dickoff, we're going to have to tell, it, tell him all this, aren't we? <laughs> Please but, don't. But Please it's don't. absolutely true that London... So West Ham wouldn't have their stadium even. You know, there's, all the, there's a real knock-on effect, basically, what you're saying. There's a knock-on yeah. effect. And even that final itself was at the old Wembley. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, like times changed, hasn't it? Honestly. Mean, just going back to Main Road, drilling down on some of the stuff you were talking about there, the different stands and all that kind of stuff. That was one thing as a kind of um obsessive completist, which I was when I was younger, I used to look and just think, 
why are why are all the different you know the different shades of blue on the seats and all the and then I remember and somebody if anybody remembers this they can they can comment in more detail than I do because I I can't remember the ins and outs but I remember going to one game at Main Road and in the middle of the program I got a poster and it was an artist impression of Main Road if all the stands were the same and all this kind of stuff so were there plans to to I think it was the kip hacks you know it was kind of like yes, making it same all the way around were, were, there, were there plans for that I mean yes yeah um however they soon got superseded by the stadium. by the new stadium yeah, yeah. That, that's it. the thing about City uh, there's a guy called Simon English who's written books on football grounds and he's he's analyzed football grounds around the country and he's, he's you know he's talked about that and he said and this was when we were still at Main Road he said Manchester City unlike Manchester United Manchester City uh, are not very good at planning Right, their stadium, right? Whereas at Old Trafford, they planned what they did, right? And he was wrong because City were very good at planning. They weren't any good at carrying over those plans. So back in 1981, City had got to the FA Cup final. They unfortunately didn't win that Cup final. Um, but that summer, they created some plans. And the plans were going to be to build a new main stand roof, to do the same on the Kipax, and to rebuild what was a flat lane end into a replica of an off stand. So basically you'd have two stands on each end, if you like, matching and the two sides matching. Um, they built the main stand roof and got relegated. Plans were put on hold and then eventually those plans just didn't get carried out. And then, like as you say, there was this great plan to make the Kipak stand the equivalent. And what we're going to do was extend the plat lane, extend the north stand, shave a bit off the main stand and then build another two on there. And that's we were going to do that. But get rid of the Gene Kelly get stands. Get rid of the Gene Kelly. Um, that would have been a shame, to be fair. Gene Kelly. I never sat in there, but I used to like it. You know, um, in regards to moving to new stadia, from the people you've interviewed, I found that, say, when I'm watching, say, something on TV and it's a European night, if people are of a certain age, they do have this sort of sense of nostalgia about things which have experienced in a stadium before, like, oh, it's another magical European night, Old Trafford, or it's Anfield, or it's this, or it's that. But I feel like the same isn't a 42 places like the Etihad like the Emirates or some of the newest area that are there, how long do you think it usually takes before people start thinking of it like that? Or does it depend on the person speaking? A big European night under the lights. Yeah. yeah. Do, do we not have the lights on at the Etihad? Or? It's, I know, it's, it's, no one ever says that. It's a stereotypical view in it. And it's just ridiculous. Is it, is it I mean, sorry I, to jump in, is it because of the person talking about it though? Because as we said before about Main Road being home, there are some people who are younger than that where Main Road was never really home. And like the Etihad's home, you know what I mean? And just think of the... The, the European nights when we have the light shows and everything else. I mean, okay, some people can get cynical about that, depending on your age. But for, for younger fans, it's the most incredible thing on if the I'd planet. If I'd have seen something like that when I was 12 at Main Road, I would have been super excited and by when it. I, when I was a kid at Main Road, we didn't do that sort of thing. But we did, we did we were, there were things. We did a band, some, you know, a band on the pitch or whatever it may be. Now, if you had actually a brass band on the pitch, people go, what's all that about? We don't want that. But But then... That was the, the sort of norm to some extent. And and I used to, I went to European nights at Main Road as a kid. So obviously when you're a kid, things are better than they actually are sometimes. But I do remember the old style floodlights, because there were towers, before when you were miles away, you'd see that. And so you, the anticipation builds up. And I think that the people doing the commentary who talk about these great nights are picturing those nights at Anfield when Alan Hansen's playing, or those nights at Old Trafford when Dennis Law's playing, right? They're not picturing the nights now because they're not quite the same. It's it's not those stadiums. Yeah, the great nights maybe, but it, it's not it's not it's not the same. And and we've had those nights 
we had a, we had them a lot at Main Road, and we've had them a lot here. We we don't we seem to be maybe it's just because we're Mancunians and we sort of play it down a bit, but and we don't boast in the way that perhaps we should do. But think back to that Hamburg game. So okay, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, we didn't go through. Right? But what a great atmosphere! What a great feeling! And then think of last season's games, magical, you know. But the commentators don't feel what we feel because they're not City fans. It's cliche, isn't it? It's cliche. What was the best game you saw at Main Road? You should be able to say best or favourite. It's a good point because they are different. They are different. So my, do you want me to give it, can I give you my answer? Yeah, go on. Go on. Of course you dive right in. Sorry, it's your podcast. Yeah, yeah, lead the Sorry. way. Lead the way. <laughs> my favourite was the final the final derby in Main Road when obviously the one you mentioned earlier, dispossessing Neville and Gota scoring. The best and the two always come to my mind are the five two against Tottenham, which John Motson said was one you know, one of the top three games he ever commentated on. We were first on match of the day that night, which was unheard of for me at the time. And then the three all against Newcastle, which was King Cladsey's best game for City. And there was a headbutt at the end for Aspria headbutted Keith yeah. Curlin, but oh, was yeah. Yeah. what can only be described as a, an assault that wouldn't not stand today. They were mine, but obviously your your association with Main Road goes back much further. So I was wondering what yours was. I think my favourite in terms of our felt was was the five one against United in eighty nine because we had gone so long as the underdogs and and we had spent peanuts. We had a manager who was a you know about to be sacked, right? <laughs> and we turned them over completely. And the thing about it was, and and we all know this because of where we're from and and what what we are and our passion for City, but it was that youth team to some extent that did that. It was Paul Lake, Ian Brightwell, Andy Inchcliffe. You know, it was those players, right? Um, Extra residence, doesn't it? We love to see our academy lads. And it was, that day, it was Manchester beating this team of world stars. For me, that 5-1 was, was incredible. Other key ones, was the a promotion match against Charlton Athletic. Last day of the season, we'd almost messed it up. I'd been to Notts County, and it was a bad day. Bad day. Um... We thought we were going to get promoted. We messed it up completely. And then last game of the season, Charlton Athletic. And we thrashed them. Absolutely thrashed them. And it, the official crowd for that day is something ridiculous, like 48,000. But the stadium held 52,000 at the time. And it was absolutely packed. People were sat on the steps. Lots of question marks. Bernard Olford, um, I interviewed him about this once and asked him some questions and he sort of looked the other way. He wouldn't talk about it. But that crowd was not 48,000. It was well over 50,000. We know it was. Um, and it was one of those days where it just went fine. A bit like that last derby at, at, at Main Road. And that day, it was just brilliant. And against Charlton, it felt like that. And we were barking. There was a celebratory pitch invasion. And it felt as if we were going to be back forever. Two years later, we got relegated. But it did feel like that. Um, that last game against United, that was really important. It was important that we left Main Road being United. Do you prefer being an underdog in a derby or a favourite? Well, there is a, you know, I've been to Old Trafford in recent years and sometimes good, sometimes bad. And there is a satisfaction that I never used to have going to Old Trafford because you sort of swan in there. Yeah, we've won the league. Yeah, we've done this, we've done that, and that—that's nice. It's not nice if you lose, but that's nice. We're the ones. You're the ones who, you know, you, 
your managers, your players are saying, we need to emulate Manchester City. That's brilliant. Keep doing that, please. Yeah. Um, but when you're an underdog, you've got nothing to lose, have you? You know, you go into that, that 5-1, that last one at Main Road. You go into those and you think, if we get a draw, that'd be great. And you win it. And it's another level altogether, isn't it? Another level. And I think we've... The the big one for us... I know we're, I'm going off at a tangent here, but that the big one was that FA Cup semi-final nation out at Wembley. That changed our thinking because they were a bit like the Champions League until this season. It's that thing, until you do it, until you do it, there's something that you're not, that's not quite complete. And so beating United in that semi-final then meant that when we come to the Etihad, um, we're playing United and we're both challenging for a title. When company scores that goal, you know it's going to happen. It's com- we're all confident from that point onwards, we're going to win the league. I know it was... I think it just gave belief generally, didn't it, that, that uh, semi-final win. What about if you, you the same question to you, what was the best favourite, however oh, you want to goodness. interpret it? Um, do you know, because I was a bit younger, my memories aren't necessarily results-based. It's just more so the feeling for me. You know, being a ball boy there, seeing the players up close and personal, getting a chance to see not just the City players, but I like see the Premier League for a spell as well. I remember seeing like Patrick Vieira just clipping over people's heads and stuff like that, thinking, oh my God, like, this is real. This is real football. I think kneeling down in front of the North Stand led me to have a few experiences as well as a, as a ball boy. Certain things were getting thrown at my head and so on and so forth. But it was it was great because I think that formed a big part of my identity. Getting a chance to go there every other week, getting a chance to see the people to, you know, I'd sit in the main stand I'd been in the Kipax, even sat in the North Stand when Millwall came down one time. That's a nice way to just like ground you. Um, but yes, yeah, it's... it's it's just, you know, it meant a lot and I was very lucky. I'm just about old enough. I played two Youth Cup games there and an under-17 playoffs. I think I might have actually been playing in the last technical game to go on at Main Road because it was after the Southampton game in the league. I played, I think it was a week after. And don't worry, we lost. So, you know, just sign off the way that we, you know, is, the, is the right way in to true do it. In true city yeah, fashion. It, of course, yeah, of course. I think what you, you know, what you said about main road and the, the sort of feeling and, and so on it's it's spawn every stand was different not just in the way it looked but the mood of that stand at times um you know i, I remember when i was a kid it was the old platte lane stand which was wooden benches and you couldn't see they just put the wooden benches on the old terrace and you couldn't really see but it just felt great and i thought my dad knew everybody in the stand because we all used to you know it was like nodding to people and all that sort of stuff um and I just remember looking across to the Kipax when it was all ter- all standing, and you'd see back then you'd see like cigarettes lighting up and that, and I just used to think it was magical this dark stand, and I couldn't wait to be in there. And then the first time I was in there, wow, it was like what, what what's going on now? Um, and then I realised as I'm a teenager that everyone in the Kipax hates the main stand and calls it the moan stand because the people who sit in the main stand are moaning all the time. That was my perception of the main stand, to be fair, as well. I was in the north stand, but we always used, used to say exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. and and it, I think we look back, you know, there's that expression about rose-tinted spectacles and all this sort of stuff, and I think we do look back at main road sometimes and think it was always a passionate atmosphere. No, it wasn't. <laughs> you know, it wasn't. Um I remember that Uddersfield game when we ended up winning 10-1. The first 20 minutes, they were all over us. Um, and we, the fans, there was about 17,000 there, and we were all moaning. And then Neil McNabb changed things, and then we suddenly started scoring the goals from that point on. 
and it was great, right? But so people talk about the Huddersfield game and say, oh, it was incredible. We won 10-1 and we were, no, we were awful for the first 20 minutes until Neil McNabb scored and then things changed. Um, and I think that's the case. But as with the Etihad, there's been some truly brilliant nights and there's been some miserable nights. The good thing is that nowadays we've, well, since we moved to the Etihad, we've had more good than bad. Way more. We are, I think I'm right in saying this, we're, we're recording this podcast today on the anniversary of Colin Bell's retirement. Talk to me about his importance to the football club and to the main road era as a whole. He scored more goals at main road than any other player. I, I, there's something I'd, I mean, I, I knew this 20 years ago because like, it was something I'd been doing, but it's something I'd forgotten until I reminded myself recently. So straight away, that's significant, you know, because he wasn't, he wasn't a sense forward, right? but he scored more goals at Main Road than anybody else, and his career was cut short. Um, I was at the game against Newcastle when he came back with me dad and my brother, and it was you know Christmas time. First half, every time he stood up to warm up, was eruption. Right, we all thought it was coming on. I've I have interviewed all in over the years I've interviewed Tony Book as well and Tony Book says that his plan wasn't to bring him on until say the last five minutes and back then you had one substitute you know the, the 11 that started would quite often finish unless somebody got injured but his plan was to bring Colin Bell on for say the last five ten minutes Paul Power got injured I think it was Power um, and I had to go off so at half time Colin Bell comes on and the the emotion of that day you know when you see your dad crying at a football match you think what I've not seen me that cry. What's going on here? Uh, and it was just overwhelming. And the, the mood of the place. And Colin Bell, recently, I've not really talked about this much, but his son John has asked me to write an official biography of, of Colin. And it's the biggest honour I've ever had. Right, So it's going to take some time, but I, I want to do Colin justice. And I, it wasn't a, boastful man he wasn't a boastful figure but what he meant to fans was incredible and I think if he'd have been as boastful as I won't say but some of our other players from that era although most of them were, were not that boastful but if he'd have been quite boastful he'd be still perceived as one of the greatest English players of all time and when he got injured obviously he came back but he wasn't the same but just being on the pitch was enough for us we just wanted to see him and I think he would have played on for City for years because he was fit. And you talk about players like, I don't know, Teddy Sheringham or whatever, who go on for years and years and years, right? Colin Bell was fitter and would have definitely gone on for years and years. He'd have probably played in 81, he'd have, you know, when we got to Cup final, he'd have probably carried on for some time and things may have been different. But not just for City, for England as well. He was, he was missed. I mean, England... Yeah, the biggest biggest loss, and and obviously he came back as a coach and helped with the youth team. So that great youth team of '86, Colin Bell, Tony Book, Limpardo, they coached those guys. They helped make those guys. And in Main Road's final decade, it was those guys that kept us sane. I suppose they're the ones that kept us competing in some way, and. You know, Ian Brightwell was the last of that sort of youth team to, that 86 youth team to sort of leave us. And it just sort of took us to, yeah, late 90s, didn't it, really, and, and so on. But that 
Yeah, I think Colin Bell, as a player, as a figure, as an ambassador, if you like, was superb and incredible. And obviously, he's got a stand named after him at the Etihad. Um, he deserves it. Totally. Wonderful. Yeah, wonderful. I was going to ask you one more question before we come to our regular podcast ones. And that is about another book project that you're working on. Um, it's called Our Home from Main Road to the Etihad. Sums up a lot of what we've been talking about today, but just kind of briefly, because I know it's coming out soon, just give listeners a, an idea of kind of what they can expect from that book. So instead of trotting through the entire history of the, the, the sort of stadiums and so on, there's it's, it's done more, you know, we talk about the, the building on Main Road and we talk about that, we talk about the Etihad, but... But one of my favourite parts of it is 100 sort of main moments, if you like. So we can talk about great games and we could probably find 100 great games through the history of the stadium, but it's not that. It's about groundsman Stan Gibson. It's about Helen Turner. It's about those sort of moments, the scoreboard. <laughs> scoreboard not working properly. The things that were typical of Main Road. Um and I think that's what makes it different. And, and I think for a lot of fans who never went to Main Road, obviously the Etihad stuff's incredible, but for fans who didn't go to Main Road, it will hopefully give a taste of what it was like going there then. And I, I'm i quite proud of the fact that I've been involved with that, actually, so thanks for getting me involved. But it's, it's great that we're sat here now, 20 years after that stadium, and we're looking back fondly at it and we're talking about what it was and we're talking about the good moments and the bad moments, but we're, at, we're able to do it from a position where, thanks to all those players, including yourself, obviously, but all those players that have played from Main Road to now, we've managed to create a club that is at the peak of football. And I think Main Road's important. Those memories, those 100 main moments are important. The first few years of the Etihad important. Without that stability of that move to the stadium, we would never have been taken over. We would have never have got to this position. And you know, I, 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 I'm sort of rambling a bit, here, but I, it drives me mad when people talk about Manchester City as if we were a third tier team that got lucky. Basically, those sort of five or six years, late nineties, were the period that's out of character with our entire history. And when we moved to stadium, we were stable to some extent. I mean, obviously, there were some issues ownership-wise, but we were basically a stable football club in the Premier League. And if we had never been that, we would not have been European champions now. Because about 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, you know, those years are important in stabilising this club and making sure it's a club that, that is here for my daughters and their generation and, and so on. So I'm going to thank Nadam as well then. Uh, yeah, that's you a, you're welcome. You're that's welcome, welcome I mean, to me, yeah. Absolutely, seriously. We we sort of forget people like, and it's the way, I'm mean, a historian, so I, I try to think a bit differently, but people always think about those one or two moments. So we will talk about Aguero. We will talk about 99. But we're not going to talk about that Newcastle game from 2003-04 that was important. We're not going to talk, because... We've got so many of those. You can't talk about every game, but they those moments when you might just get a point that might and that point might keep you in the division or that point might lift you one more place, which might mean that you can attract somebody else. Yeah. They're so vital. I think all these points are linked and I think across the years it's sort of affected the identity a little bit. Because say 
what if what happened in 2012 goes the wrong way then i think a year ago it was it against aston villa i think more people have left because they think well this is it we've blown it this that's the, this is the time to go but because you've had a taste of the value of staying you stay for the next time and even say you mentioned the game against Hamburg in 2008 i was playing in that game that's one of my favorite games i've ever played in you know what i mean because the atmosphere there was so good and we started the game 3-1 down and we were down to 10 men and the atmosphere got even better and we're pushing, we're pushing, we're pushing, everyone's right behind it and maybe it's the city identity thing. We end up losing the tie, winning the game, but leaving and we're happy. You know, that's like a big part of, say, where the club was at that moment in time. Obviously, the expectations change now, but a lot of the people who went to those that game then, they're still going to these games now and they never expect to win but they have belief and they hope that they can win. You know what I mean? They rally around it together. Like I, and, and that, you know, we talk about great European nights and that is absolutely one of those nights, but in the end, we got nowhere, yeah, you know? Exactly. But it just shows you, and obviously every football club's got their moments like this, but that is, and it's, it's refreshing to know that the players felt that. That's that incredible. Night. Without that, one of, the, nice one hear, of the best, yeah. like, games literally ever played in. The atmosphere was amazing. Remember, that was one of the few games at the stadium where we had flares. There was a flare going off. And I was like, wow, it's like a proper game, isn't it? You know what I mean? <laughs> right, we are running out of time and uh, producer Oliver is giving me some uh, very it, distressing glances. Sorry about this. So, <laughs> so, but we must we must do the, uh, the three that we do for every guest. So this question was left by our last guest, Alex Williams, and he just said, what is the most fantastic thing about Manchester City Football Club? It's funny, actually, because that's Alex Williams. I would say community, because that's something that's ran through his club from the beginning. The club was set up for the community, and it's so community. And I'd say it's ours. Manchester City is ours. You know, I know I, I interviewed Caldoun years ago, and and he said something like, "We're just the current custodians of the club. It's your club, and it is. And that's and community and everything doing in our community is incredible. So community. What a great way of putting it from uh, from Caldoun there. If you can change one thing about football, just to make it better, and uh, maybe rule change, viewing experience, fan experience, whatever it is, if you can change one thing, what would it be? I'd like to hear from the referee, right? So in the Women's World Cup recently, we've, we've had referees telling us the VAR decision. I'd like to hear more, right? I heard Howard Webb talking the other week uh, on radio, and he was saying, oh, we, we can't mic up the referees to, for the public to hear. There's so many technical problems. And he'd obviously not seen the Women's World Cup where he was happening. But I'd, I'd, I'd want to know these decisions because, yes, we all make mistakes. So I don't want to criticise them. But you tell us why you've done something. Be interviewed after the game. Explain. And finally, what was the last thing that you binged? So this might be a book you loved, a film you really enjoyed, series on Netflix, whatever it might be, podcast series, whatever. It's by accident, um, but it really cheered me up, actually. We were in Italy and we were sat at this really small bar uh, and he was just getting a drink and the guy was playing an album, but it was more than one album because we ended up staying, of Bad Manners, the band from the 80s who did uh, Lip Up Fatty, right? go and listen to it if you can. And it's just Buster Blood Vessel, was the lead singer, was just um, this big sort of larger than life character, right? Um, and he just cheered me up enormously. I don't know why, he just... It just gives you this lift. So go out and listen to Bad Manners. Um, and that's what we did. And yeah, ended up, I think it was two albums we listened to 
at this bar just listening to this guy's music fantastic Gary James thank you so much for joining us that was uh, a wonderful nostalgia trip thank you thanks for having me the official Manchester City podcast with Rob Pollard and Nader Manua there we have it our conversation with Dr Gary James he was the right guy to get in on an anniversary as significant as the one we're celebrating absolutely he felt like he was just like a human Google you know what I mean like let's let's learn something about Manchester football here's a guy to tell you about the FA Cup win in the uh, in the early 1900s or you know the move across here the highs the lows like it's amazing that he has that much knowledge about football not just for City but for Manchester itself and say he must see a different game to us because he just feels everything. He knows the context of every point. And, you know, I think for most of us, we have that understanding of a journey, but he has a deeper understanding because he can go so much further back than say even before he started watching the team. It's truly amazing guy, I think. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that was really kind of striking me throughout is the importance of historians because he was talking about kind of fact-checking and and putting people right on, on certain things because he is fastidious in his research and he goes back and, and he, he digs deep into archives and, and all of that kind of stuff, he's kind of helping us understand this club's history in, in more accuracy and, and more detail, isn't he, basically? Yeah, very much so, very much so. And I think that does make a big difference because, you know, very quickly you can just run with something that's just not real, something that's not true. I think even if we make it more relatable to something more recent, City winning the league last season. I think very quickly people forget that Arsenal was top of the table for 80% of the season. But that chase is a big part of what made that season so great come the end of it. So then try and talk about something that was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, what chance have you got? But when you have people like him, and it's not just something which I think most of us are probably guilty of where we skim research. Like, he's speaking to people, he's looking at books, he's going back and really trying to figure out what the reality of it was because it's very, very important because that shows the reality of what the football club actually is. Yeah, he's doing his research properly, unlike you and I. Oh, listen, mate. The first page on Google is plenty. It's plenty enough. We're doing it on the fly. No, it was great to, to talk about it, man. One of my favourite episodes because the opportunity to talk about Main Road for me is, is something I'll always... I could sense that. I could sense that. Yeah, I think so, can, if you listen carefully, you can hear him cry as well. So, something I, I, I will always enjoy. And then the final little bit we spoke about is the book that he's got coming out, our home from Main Road to the Etihad. Gary's been heavily involved in that. I mean, I've seen bits, not seen very much at all, but I know with his involvement that that's going to be a great book. Yeah, I think given the way he was speaking about it with a real big smile on his face, I get the feeling it's going to be a classic. So yeah, it's definitely something I'm going to get for sure. Good stuff. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the official Manchester City podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever it is you do your podcast listening. And until next time, take care and join us again soon. The official Manchester City podcast. Subscribe and follow now so you never miss an episode.